So I'm Writing a Novel is the show where you join me, Oliver Brackenbury, on the journey of writing my next novel, from first ideas all the way to publication and promotion. In this one-man reality show, I'll share with you my ever-evolving thoughts and feelings on how I write, being a writer, and everything that entails at each stage of the process. I'll also interview special guests involved in writing and publishing. If you're the kind of person who likes to learn how things are made and get to know the people making them, then this is the show for you. I'd like to say a quick thank you to our Patreon supporters who make this show possible. Patrons get to listen to episodes of the show early and gain access to a treasure trove of bonus content that I'm regularly adding to, including over 70 bonus episodes, the TV pilot screenplay I wrote with the novel's character, and more. Please check it out at patreon.com slash so I'm writing a novel. Last episode, when I said I was going to be taking a break from the podcast to focus on finishing my outline for the novel, I also said there was one big exception to that. An exception I was very happy to make for author and publisher and editor, and all-around nice guy, Howard Andrew Jones. I first became aware of Howard when I read his story, The Second Death of Hanavar, in the pages of Tales from the Magician's Skull, the magazine he edits, issue number three. So it's fitting that I'm having him on the show today to discuss the first Hanavar book, Lord of a Shattered Land, published by Bain Books. It will be the first in a five, potentially seven book series. We'll get into why it's five or seven in the interview. And book two is already written and ready to go, as is, I believe book three is pretty close to being ready to go, so this is not like something where you're going to have to wait a long time to read those other installments. The tales of Hanavar take place in a secondary world inspired by the age of the early to mid-Roman Empire, which only makes sense since Hanavar is loosely based on a historical enemy of the Romans, Hannibal of Carthage. As with Hannibal, so too is Hanavar a great general. Hanavar is of the Valani people, and when we join him, it's shortly after the Valani have been ruthlessly crushed by the Durvan Empire. Their capital has been ground to rubble, most of their people have been killed, and the survivors have pretty much all been enslaved. For reasons I won't spoil, Hanavar was far from home when this happened, and we join him as he heads back, knowing what's happened, determined to find and help as many of his fellow Valani as he can, despite no longer having any army to command. That determination to help his people, that focus on empathy over revenge, is just one of the many qualities which make Hanavar a fascinating and enjoyable protagonist to spend time with. Part of why I've laid all that out for you, rather than cover it in the interview, is that Howard's already done a lot of press for the book, explaining these basics over and over, as you do when you're promoting a book. I thought it might be more interesting for him and for you if I got that stuff out of the way here in the intro so that Howard and I can go deeper and really focus on this podcast's main jam, the craft of writing. Speaking of craft, Howard's actually taken a pretty cool approach to how he structures the Hanavar books, making them kind of like a season of television in that each chapter is written like a complete short story, but then they're all strung together in a row to form a greater tale, with kind of a season finale at the end that's a little more continuity-heavy than the preceding stories, and drives you on into the next book. Okay, you can tell I'm excited about this, right? For heaven's sakes, let's go chat with Howard. Here I am with Howard Andrew Jones. Hey, Howard. Hey, how are you today? Doing well. It's fun to get to chat with you face to face after, you know, we've done this once before, actually, listener, in case I forgot to mention uh, earlier, uh, if you go back to episode 12, you can get a, a broader, you know, who's Howard? What's his whole deal? And like, you know, kind of interview that we did uh, only interview number two uh, for the show, actually. So thanks for that, Howard. You helped me get started with this thing. But this one, we're going to go more more deep. Uh, we're talking more about, of course, uh, the new Lord of a Shattered Land, the first in the Hanavar series. And um, why don't we go really, really early, by which I mean the dedication. <laughs> the <laughs> book, uh, you don't really talk much about these, but I, I know you've got something in you for this, and I'm, I'm curious to hear you uh, share it to, to listeners. The book is dedicated to uh, not your wife, not your dog, not your house, uh, your house. Uh, it's dedicated to <laughs> Harold Lamb. Harold Lamb, why why is it dedicated to this guy, and what elements of his work do you feel were most strongly carried forward into writing Hanavar? 
Well, I do have to say that I've dedicated a number of my books to my wife. So yeah, sorry, I didn't mean that. <laughs> the subtext is I'm, I'm saying you don't love your wife. That's what I yeah no <laughs> yeah that's exactly what you're saying. So I've I've done that before, um, and I I kind of wanted to do something different with the next round of books. But honestly, the reason I did this was because this book would not have existed if I had not read Harold Lamb when I was I don't know I've been saying 16. I think it was 16. It might have been 15. I was wandering through the public library. I was a bit of a history nerd, and there on the shelf was uh, his biography of Hannibal of Carthage. And I pulled that down from the shelf and read it and loved it. And uh, I became fascinated with Hannibal of Carthage for, you know, I still remain fascinated with him. I have a, now a whole library of books about him and his time period and uh, the Roman Republic of the same era and uh, the Punic Wars and et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. So anyway... Harold Lamb launched my interest in that, but it was such a fine book. I could tell it wasn't just that the character was fascinating, but that it was finely told. And I wanted to find more things that Harold Lamb had written, preferably about Hannibal. I saw he had a huge long list of topics, some of which repeated. You know, he'd written multiple times about the Russians, multiple times about uh, the Mongolians. I thought, well, maybe there's something else he wrote about Hannibal and Carthage. And remember, I was a teenager. So when I saw a title that said The Curved Saber, I didn't know that sabers weren't remotely anything that Carthaginians would have been using. <laughs> As it happened, that title happened to be in the, uh, the library. And I pulled it down from the shelf and fell in love with these wonderful swashbuckling tales of Cossacks. Now, I haven't written about Cossacks, but these tales are all interlinked one after the other with a wily older antagonist, excuse me, protagonist, <laughs> wandering to the far realms of the 16th century in Asia. And my God, it's just great adventure fiction. I love them for so many reasons, but I love them because of the very brilliant protagonist who's a master of tactics and strategy and the way that each one of them leads into the next so that as you read them, you're kind of watching a series of mini movies that form an entire season. Both of those things were an incredible inspiration for me. Yeah. And I mean, maybe you've never written any Cossack stories, but certainly you expressed a different kind of very sincere love for those original tales by editing and helping get published collections of them years later, right? The Wolf of the Steps and so forth. Well, absolutely. So many of them, well, first, the ones that I had found hadn't been reprinted since the 60s, so they were hard to find anyway. But it turns out that there were just dozens and dozens more that had never been reprinted since the pulps in 1920. And I had originally thought, oh, well, they probably just selected the best. And no, it turned out that wasn't the case. They'd selected some good ones all about the same character, but there were some even about this character that had never been reprinted that were just as good. <laughs> some of them were among the very best. And they weren't reprinted. So I was thinking about how to describe this. Imagine you were a big fan of 60s melodic guitar rock or something. Uh, you know, you, you were into guitar innovators, but you'd never heard Hendrix. And then someone hands you a Hendrix disc, right? Your mind would be blown. So these are like that good. If you're into adventure fiction... And I couldn't believe no one had access to these. And it was a crime. And it wasn't just me alone. There were other Harold Lamb fans. Who were like, my God, other people need access to these. I want to read the obscure ones because I can't find them. So I found a way. <laughs> and uh, listener, uh, Howard showed up at my door one time wearing a white shirt and a black tie, holding a copy of Wolf in the Steps. And uh, now, but I have, uh, I, I am one of the converted. I got to say, I'm really happy uh, that I took your recommendation. And I really felt like I learned a lot. From reading, uh, you know, Harold Lamb, like he's just a phenomenal author. And if I remember correctly, uh, Robert E. Howard cited him as one of his major influences, maybe the major influence. Oh, absolutely. I think he's, I've been saying for a long time, he's the grandfather of sword and sorcery. You can see almost all of the same ideas in there. The love of the borderlands, the person suspended between civilization and, well, in this case, the steppe. Mm -hmm. Of course, magic isn't real, although there's an occasional moment where something might be going on. Yeah, little suggestions, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and it's not a secondary world, but it's certainly remote places in a, in a remote time of our own world. It's wonderful stuff. Yeah, and then, then as you say, that sort of almost television-like uh, continuity. I mean, one thing I really dug about it was that you could airdrop someone anywhere in the collection, and they would be able to very quickly go, okay, I see who's here and what's happening, and, and, and enjoy that story on its own. But at the very beginning and end of each story, it was like Cleep uh, the Cossack himself, I found, didn't change much, which is not a problem. But his status quo would change pretty dramatically by the ends of a lot of the stories. And then he'd still be in that status quo next time. So like, okay, cool. Like there was still a conversation between the stories. And when a story ended, it felt more impactful because it's like, okay, well now he's 
you know, being booted out of the Cossacks or, okay, now he's leading this group of people over here or he's traveling into this strange place. I can't wait to see what he does there. Now he's finally found the secret origin of the sword he's been carrying around for four or five stories. You know, just yeah. <laughs> all, this, all this great stuff. But each one does stand alone. I loved that. Mm. I love that. Also, you didn't have to wait for the story to get moving. No. You know, it always starts with something interesting. No long, slow buildup. Well, actually, that gets me to my next question, right? Um, so, yeah, due to the book, your, your book, kind of being structured like a season of television, with each chapter being more akin to a complete story than a sliver of a big one, I felt this placed a greater importance on writing a strong opening for each and every chapter. And I got to say, the very first chapter's opening really grabbed me. Literally in the first two pages, I pulled out my phone and I was like, going to message you. And I was like, no, 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 keep going. It's only two pages, for God's sake. All <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I loved how much it set up without feeling overstuffed and just, yeah. So... Could you share with us a little bit about what you aim for when writing an opening, be it for a book or a chapter, just a story, whatever the length? Well, when I particularly to this new book, the opening has to grab you succinctly. It has to pull you in. And I certainly tried to do that with the opening paragraph of every one of these tales, get a situation in motion that was intriguing, either an interesting image or uh, action underway and move forward from there. And so sometimes it takes a little bit of work to find that moment. I remember a couple of these stories, uh, particularly story two, I had a hard time finding where the moment was. I had all these background details worked out. And sometimes when you're doing these rough drafts, you got to write through the background details so you know what they are. And then you figure out where the interesting point begins and how much of the background detail can just be revealed over the, you know, later. And that's really the trick I've found. For a while there, I was trying to start them the way Richard Stark starts each Parker novel with these amazing opening sentences. And sometimes that will work, but not always. Sometimes if you do that, it sounds like you're just trying to do a Westlake who's, that's the real name of Richard Stark. Mm -hmm. But yeah, look at the, look at the way really pulse pounding stories open and try and figure out how they're doing it. And a lot of times it's not giving the background. A lot of background can be implied, start with the interesting moment, and then we can fill in later. Not with an info dump. I hate info dumps. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, yeah. yeah I, I've always found interesting, actually, is you mentioned um, Richard Stark and the Parker novels, which, listener, if you're not familiar, um, whether or not the stories end up grabbing you, though I suspect they would, you should check them out precisely because they have incredible openings. And I'm just looking through some notes I have here. Uh, I took a running course with Howard uh, a couple of years ago, and there was a Freaking great opening. Here it is. Okay, so it's so short and so punchy. Oh, I, I know which one you're going to say. It's when the phone Barbara. rang. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead, I'm just going to share this real quick, folks, because I think this is just, you'll, you'll dig it. So from Firebreak by Richard Stark, uh, a.k.a. Donald Weiss, like, when the phone rang, Parker was in the garage killing a man. There's a first sentence. His knees pressed down on the interloper's back. His hands were clasped around his forehead. He heard the phone ring distantly in the house as he jerked his forearms back, heard the neck snap. Heard the phone's second ring, cut off, as Claire answered, somewhere in the house. No time to do anything with the body now. Parker stood and was entering the kitchen from the garage when Claire came in the other way, carrying his cordless. He says his name is Elkins, she told him. Just boom, like, oh, okay, so, you know, obviously we have some action happening here, but just like the parallel of that, like, and the phone's ringing, there's a lot of stuff going on here, and okay, he's got to hide the body, all right, well, there's a phone call, who is it? Okay, let's go figure out what's going on. Like, I'm just immediately, like, I have a lot of questions, I'm engaged, I want to know what's happening. Yeah, I just love that. I, I It's not hard to see why uh, you strongly recommend reading Parker novels. To, well, the, the juxtaposition things. of the horror and the perfectly ordinary detail of the phone ringing. Anything that can get your reader intrigued that way, and I don't mean that you need to start with horror versus modern all the time, but just find an interesting way to start with intriguing, well, what's going on? The other thing, you can't make it so confusing that the reader can't figure out what's going on. They have to picture clearly what's happening, but wonder why. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting balance, right? Like, and the, and the fact that you do largely want to focus on raising questions, whereas I think sometimes when people get tripped up and you get those kind of info dumpy things, is this feeling of having to provide a lot of answers. And it's like, well, not at the start. <laughs> you know, over the course of stories, where we're going to get these answers. You want to raise the questions so people want to hear them, I feel. Well, I, absolutely. I think finding the answer, waiting to find the answer, is, is sometimes a forgotten hook. So we're used to reading these long fantasy novels where so much is explained up front. And I think not knowing can actually be more interesting. Not understanding the secret back history, but having it kind of implied. Once you become more invested in the characters, then you're like, wow, I really want to know the real details. What's, what's the, 
background. And then it's used when you finally do deliver it, then the reader's interested as opposed to slogging through it at the start. Yeah. Like I think, um, I forget who I was talking to where this came up. I think it was uh, when I interviewed Kim Stanley Robinson, but it was this idea of world building being more satisfying as payoff rather than setup. And that's what I you're describing that. there. I love that. Well, yeah. And that, that perfectly ties in with my own beliefs and what I've found in uh, the joyous reading of some of these uh, post-World War II writers who were doing uh, detective novels and Westerns. And that's the way they did it. I'm not sure when the other thing sort of took over. Yeah, I must admit, I'm not familiar enough uh, to say precisely where. But, uh, oh, well, oh, well, there's always time to uh, to bring it back. Uh, and actually, the wondering, the, the questioning is kind of neat because that brings me to my next, uh, my next question. See, something else I really enjoy about this book is the subjectivity of Hanavar's adventures as they are related to the reader, right? We're not just reading, like, your straight telling of Hanavar. We're reading an adaptation of the telling by a playwright who spends only most of the book, right? He's not there for the first couple of stories. Uh, you know, first three, I want to say, um, with commentary in footnotes by a scholar, some other voices getting in there, and the overall thing is being packaged for us by the ancestor of that playwright. <laughs> and this is something about that I really love because then it makes you go, you know, look back over the stories and wonder, like, well, is that how that part really happened? You know, when did you decide? Oh, so pardon me. And also to the, the gaps and questioning thing, sorry, it also it, it leaves room for your imagination to kind of play. In and interpret the thing you know yourself uh so when did you decide to take this approach and what do you feel it brings oh my god so first i i was having fun if i'm not having fun the reader won't have fun i knew that i wanted antiris to be the guy suggested as the chronicler but it wasn't until i really thought that you know i'm gonna package this as a novel that i thought I needed some linking sections. My agent suggested it needed kind of a preamble to introduce the whole thing. And I played around with that and realized, you know, that's a really good idea. Thanks, Bob. And then I thought, well, why not some, why not have Antares actually link all the things? And I thought, okay, I, I like this a lot. And then I thought, you know, what would be fun is if I could have someone commenting on the commenter. So then I have one of his descendants uh, providing additional detail as though it's excerpts from a longer work and he's had to go back in and, and calibrate it. And then I thought it would be fun if there's a third voice, a more scholarly voice, someone who's more scientific and removed, who can comment just on occasional terms. And so this descendant of Antares has only taken the most useful of her comments because I've tried to imply that she, she was a little bit anal retentive and even had really super long comments that he's left out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so that way, she, her voice is just to provide specific detail over terms that aren't covered by Antares or that he hasn't, uh, the descendant hasn't addressed. It was interesting the effect that her commentary had on the flow of stories, I found. Uh, you didn't use it too much. And I think that was a good call because you don't want to break up that, you know, the flow too much. But when it came up occasionally, it kind of felt like someone was pulling me aside and being like, hang on. And I just was like, you know, I was going to read like the plaque about the history in the museum or whatever, and then go, okay, back to watching the story. Uh, and like, that was, yeah, that was a neat experience that you don't, uh, you don't often get. And it was also a way, I think, of getting some of that sort of uh, deeper world building that maybe wouldn't have been so easy to weave in naturally to the action in a way that if you want to, you can go down and read that footnote. But if you're not into it, hey, you can just keep going and, you know, you can infer what's going on. It's not uh, uh, mandatory, I guess, is a way of putting it. Yeah, I wanted to make them fun. If you're into it, you can explore deeper, but I didn't want to make them integral to the story. You know, the old style character description isn't as popular anymore, so I didn't. I didn't really do that much of it, but there's one point where she actually shows us exactly old school style, what Hanavar looks like and also what Cyprion looks like. Mm. And I did that in a footnote. So if you don't want to read old style, modern descriptions, you don't have to do it, but there he is. Yeah, I really enjoyed that. And even, I, I, I don't think this is spoilery because it's kind of like an addendum to the book, but a listener, um, maybe skip ahead a minute if you uh, don't want to hear this. But what I really liked was how I finished the novel I, I dug it. I'm not going to say anything about the events, but then we get this kind of uh, addendum reminding us of the framing device of the book and getting into a little more detail and having uh, Antares, uh, the younger, the playwright's ancestor, being like, yeah, you know, I, I had to cut a bunch of stuff down. <laughs> so the commentary is a bit fuzzy. Uh, these parts were my, 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 you know, my, uh, sorry, I can't remember. It was his grandfather? Uh, it's his, it's his uh, God, great, great, great uh, uncle. Is right, right. Pardon me. Right, pardon me. I got muddled because it's the, the younger and the elder, and so my brain just like put it yeah. closer together. But yeah, so that many more generations uh, before me. It's like yeah, so my great great uncle, you know, he got excited and got like too effusive about these parts. There were other parts he wasn't there for. 
I don't know how he thought he knew anything, but I just tried to make it make sense. And it just was so fun to read that after having read the climax, uh, you know, the whole book, because it just, like I say, it made me, it, it, it made me do that thing that I think reader, uh, writers often want their readers to do, which is to finish the book, but then not just go sure and then sling on the shelf. Instead, you know, hang on, wait, and reconsider everything they've just taken in. <laughs> and <laughs> uh, right, Antares can only relay and infer events that he wasn't there for, right? So he tried to diligently record all of that. And we see him actually doing that in, in the background some of the times. But some of the other stuff, his descendant has additional sources, including the very careful uh, research that the other scholar, uh, Silenus, went out and did. Uh, several years after uh, Antares' original journey with Hanamar. And so he he leans heavily on her stuff to fill out some of the details, but he freely admits that he had to do some uh, speculating in some of the scenes with some of the people he could never have met. <laughs> I won't spoil the details of this because this does feel like something maybe you want to have saved for you, but I will just say this, uh, listener, you also get some additional context of how uh, Antares the Elder, uh, who you've seen traveling with Hanamar throughout the book, near the end of his life was like, oh, I should have done it differently. I don't know. Jeez. Like, you can see him having classic like, writer's regrets and concerns. And that was also very satisfying. I won't spoil what they were because they're kind of neat in the context of having just read it. But yeah, that was great stuff too. I, I'm curious. Um, I feel like you had found a good workaround for this actually. So maybe it was never an issue, but was there any point where you were relaying something and you felt, oh, you know, can I get away with this if Antares isn't in the scene? I know I'm going to have this conceit later, but oh, like, was it, was it ever an issue with the, with the POV not being strictly speaking? No, no, no. I just had fun with it. I... <laughs> <laughs> the, the important thing is, uh, you know, Antares sees so many of these characters uh, in person, so he can mm. think about how they must have behaved off person. And he knows Hanavar very thoroughly once he's traveled with them. So it's pretty easy to for him to imagine Hanover telling him when he wasn't there exactly what happened and then him building building the rest around him. So True, true. And, and then also we have the, the nice parallel of um, him getting to know Hanover better over the course of the book and us getting to watch that relationship and then understanding the feedback loop between like what, what's being relayed to us and him getting to know him and then being like, well, hang on, that's getting into his perception of the story that we're hearing that, you know, yeah, anyway, I love it. I love awesome. it. I, I, I thought it was a really great framing device and I look forward to reading more of it. In the, in the following well, I wanted books. to do something fun so that if you really wanted to think hard about it, you know, you can see all that stuff, but I wanted it to be completely unnecessary. You can't just read them straight without even worrying about any of that. That was, <laughs> that was the goal. Oh yeah. Yeah. No, it's absolutely like, um, these are toppings, you know, it's not the meal. It's not, it's not, not mandatory by any stretch, but I feel it adds so much. Uh, and I really want to make sure listeners understand there's this fun for them. Cause I mean, what do people like to do, right? With the story, they love to turn over in their heads and this gives us so much more, uh, sort of soil to till, I guess. <laughs> so moving on, uh, I've had the good fortune to hear you describe your outlining method that you've used for this sort of the scaffolding method, which if I remember correctly is something hard won, uh, through years of experimentation and working on your craft. But for those who haven't been fortunate enough, like myself, to hear you already talk about it, could you please share the gist of this scaffolding method and how it helped you with writing the Hanover books, particularly given the fact that you have been writing them, um, I don't imply sloppily, but quickly. You know, you've been you've had a tight schedule because the second book is only coming out in a few more months, right? So right. you've been, you've been working hard, and and I, and I remember you describing that this scaffolding method really helped with that. Oh my goodness! So yes. uh, how does that work? Well, first off, it wouldn't work if I didn't have a whole lot of the prep work done ahead of time. So I've had this character in my head for a very, very long time. And I had a feeling for the setting for a very long time. Uh, and I don't think this method would work without those. The other thing is that I have notebooks, literally multiple notebooks full of thumbnails and ideas for things that Hanover could do and people he could meet and all that stuff. I began working on that as I was finishing my last series for St. Martin's. I knew that I wouldn't be able to get additional writing done in the evening when my brain was tired, but that I could certainly jot down ideas. So I spent months, months and months and months just, all right. So anyway, there's the background. If you don't have your characters, you don't have the background. I don't think this method would work. So put the time in on that. And also it's not going to work for everybody, but this is what works for me. Mm -hmm. Dialogue comes fairly easily for me. I can hear it pretty well. So my rough draft, I call it a scaffold really, is kind of like a crappy screenplay. I write out all the dialogue. And if it's not a dialogue scene, I do minimal stage directions. 
uh, especially combat scenes, because once I begin to draft, once I'm no longer, I hate to stop and figure out uh, the blocking for how it's gonna how it's gonna go down. So I I get all that down, and people say, oh, I don't want to. Uh, I hate to outline because uh, it loses all spontaneity. Well, this is where I'm spontaneous in this scaffolding draft. It's really a bad screenplay. And I mean, I allow it to be rough. I'm not trying to make it polished. This is so uh, if I experiment with a scene and dialogue and it doesn't work, I haven't invested a whole lot of room coming up with beautiful similes and metaphors. I'm just like, okay, out it goes, delete. And then I try again. So I experiment in this stage and then, and then I have something really solid. And the other thing is I, I type, uh, I don't type it most of the time, almost, I'd say like 98% of the time I do this in a notebook and then I type it in and then I never have, oh, I'm staring at a blank screen. Whatever shall I do? No, I've got mm. the, I've got the entire blueprint for what I'm going to do. And then I go in and then I struggle to find the, the opening sentence, right? And then I add in the description. And then, of course, I, I polish up the dialogue. Sometimes the dialogue changes a lot. Sometimes the combat scenes change a lot. But it allows me, once I'm in the drafting phase, to move fairly quickly because I put the work in ahead of time. I like that. And, and yeah, the fact that, you know, <laughs> I, I, I had trouble in my earlier writings where I just went straight to writing on the page, of course. And then when I got to the editing, and if I had to remove a scene, I was so reluctant to remove a scene because I was like, I wrote every inch of this thing. And ah, oh, geez. Whereas, yeah, like I like what you're describing, which actually bringing it back to television, um, you know, this idea of this early scaffold and you just, if a scene's not working, who cares? You're just losing a few beats, you know, or a few lines of dialogue instead of a whole massively written thing. It makes me think a little bit of the uh, breaking uh, an episode of television. You know, the index cards on the board, each card's like, you know, Billy comes in this room, you know, Jenny says blah. And I'm, I'm wondering, I know you've had some experience with the world of film and TV. Was that ever on your mind while you were coming up with scaffolding? Well, absolutely. Episode? And I mean, when I'm, so when I'm structuring, each of these books is, I've described it to you as a TV season, right? So, mm -hmm. so far, each of the books, I'm, I'm revising book three right now. Each of the books has about 14 episodes. And some of them are key to, okay, here's a turning point. This has to fall in the middle. But as I come up with the thumbnails, I have them on index cards, just like you would as you're working a screenplay and TV. I have them on index cards, and I think very carefully about which one makes the most sense to follow in this order. What leads into the best turning point? Where's the best uh, story to start, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, I have a uh, undergraduate degree as a radio TV film major. Uh, I never ended up working in the film industry except briefly as a uh, production assistant uh, at an NBC affiliate. So, you know, I, I helped make commercials and, and film the evening news. But mm. uh, I did get that training. And I suppose I think about the page in a cinematic way, you know, establishing shots and things. But it's helped me with my outlining. Although I didn't find my way to the scaffolding. Uh, method until I had, I don't know, six or seven published novels. I was slowly working my way towards it. I started as mostly a pantser with a very, very loose outline. And it worked great for Desert of Souls, my first novel, but man, did it blow up in my face on the second book. I never wanted to do that again. Yeah. I mean, I guess we just got to figure these things out as we figure them out. You know, it's always tempting to, especially when you're younger and just starting being like, oh, if I can just find that magic formula. <laughs> right? Right, right. But yeah, I, I, my feeling is always, uh, I, I tend to describe how I write as or my writing method as kind of like Frankenstein's monster, you know, it's just stitched together for it's lumbering along from bits and pieces. I pick up as I go along and it's constantly being refined. There is no one true way. And it sounds like, you know, so this is where, you know, sort of your, your monster's at so far, you know, we got the scaffolding thing going on and God knows what you're going to tear off and stitch onto it, you know, in another couple of years time. But uh, it's, it's moving pretty well right now, I think, at least judging by certainly this book. <laughs> Right. I think my last St. Martin's book was kind of structured this way, but it's been even easier for the Hanavar stuff because each one's composed of individual segments. So it's much easier to script each one out ahead of time as opposed mm -hmm. to a really big, long novel. This is a novel made up of individual episodes. So it's much easier to compartmentalize. Although compartmentalizing has its own problems because each one has to be a complete story unto itself with a new antagonist and a new environment and a new situation. So I'm constantly having to do that side of it. Do you find, I, I've been finding this because I'm, I'm working on a novel that uh, is basically a long string of short stories and I am finding it very satisfying, very enjoyable, don't get me wrong, but also a lot more work 
because as you say, you have to have a complete story in each one rather than, okay, this chapter is going to be like a sliver of the bigger thing. Do you find that more and more effortful than, than say one story, you know, one complete story over the course of a whole book with a lot of slivers versus uh, each chapter being a complete story? You know, they, they both have their challenges. I've written enough of the other ones that there's things I was tired of worrying about. Frequently middles can drag and then you've got to mm -hmm. work hard to figure out how not to make them drag. And of course I was finishing the third book of a interconnected series. So I had all of these huge arcs to wrap up by the third one. And I don't miss that at all. <laughs> I'm rather enjoying working on the arcs I'm working on and being able to tie up individual episodes. So yeah, I mean, it is challenging in a, in a completely different way, but I guess right now, and I'm about halfway through the series now as I'm revising book three, right now I'm enjoying it more. Yeah, I guess I, as you describe it, like there's less um, accumulated baggage by the time you get further along. <laughs> like things yeah, so. yeah, and I mean there is going to be some accumulated baggage because each book builds, each of these books and series builds on the one before. But for some reason, for some reason, that's not bothering me nearly as much. <laughs> I don't know why. I, I'll be honest; I'm just having so much fun uh, writing this way that it, it makes even the obstacles not as bad because I just I'm enjoying what I'm doing. Well, that's always a good sign, eh? Your internal compass telling you, like, maybe you're writing the right story if it's feeling this good to do it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And actually, yeah, it brings us to my, my next question, which is, you know, knowing how much story there is to tell about a character or premise can be difficult. You know, is this a short story? Is this a novella? You know, whatever. I'm impressed uh, to have heard you say before, and, and we'll come back to it here, that there will be five hand of our books, potentially seven. Uh, if, if sales are strong enough, folks, buy it. Uh, clearly, <laughs> uh, clearly you feel Hanover's story, which uh, I was amused to see referred to as the Hanover, uh, <laughs> is, is a, a hearty tale. How much of that feeling is down to plotting? You know, just literally being like, okay, well, there's this many things that have to happen. And how much is faith in the versatility of your character? Oh, it's, it's, it's both. Wow, what an excellent question. That's very insightful. Yes, I have a number of ideas that I wish to explore many of which are, are very short thumbnails, and I know where I want to have them happen. So I have many ideas for the upcoming books, but it's not as though I have each of them, each of them thoroughly worked out yet. There's holes and gaps, but I have complete faith, having done this now three times. Like I said, I, I'm not drafting book three, I'm revising book three. So I've mm -hmm. never, these are all worked out. I've done this now three times, and each time if there's a gap I'm worried about, I come up with something that I like, and that I'm having fun with. And I have complete faith I can continue to do this and explore all these other uh, all these other ideas and fully flesh them out. I, I don't think it's ever going to be padded. I'm just having too much fun. Hmm. So, yeah. Okay, yeah. Because I, I must admit, one thing that really struck me was that I was like, yeah, you can do a lot with Hanavar. I feel like a lot of the classic, uh, you know, big pulp characters, I mean, your Conan, your Batman, the Shadow... Like the, the, he shares a commonality with them in the sense that he's just very versatile. And so you can have faith that there'll be lots of story, more stories to enjoy because there's just so much to do with him, so many ways he can react to different situations. Yeah, yeah. I, I For me, it was like, I think I think Howard's just got like a real banger character here. Uh, but it's interesting to hear your answer. Uh, so yeah, thank you for that. So yeah, several stories. I, I want to say three, forgive me if I'm messing this up, uh, in the book were adapted from previous versions that were originally published in uh, your wonderful magazine, Tales from the Magician's Skull. How did you find the process of moving them over and fitting them into the bigger picture? And it sounds like I, 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 we've heard the answer of the back end of this, but how much of that bigger picture could you already see when you wrote those earlier versions? Well, I always wanted to write closely interlinked. So you probably noticed the first few that were in the skull, each one followed one after the other. That's the way I wanted to do it. I wanted to write them in order as they happened. Mm. Uh, so that wasn't a challenge at all. When I assembled them in a book, I, of course, went and revised them thoroughly so that the language could be even sharper, so that uh, I eliminated some word echo I didn't notice, you know, in the earlier draft and, and, and that kind of thing. But no, that, that wasn't a particular challenge at all, because I had always meant for them to be read in sequence. That's how I wanted to structure them. Actually, uh, this reminds me of something I wanted to ask you that I forgot to put in my formal question. So here we are. This is just my, my feeling as I was reading. Please correct me if I'm wrong. But I'm wondering if in your editing, did you find yourself pruning back your sort of use of adjectives? I felt I felt, felt like after a while, like it was very noticeable when you would get more descriptive. And I guess it reminded me of a moment in your course, we were talking about, you know, character descriptions and how you said you try to avoid what you think of as the portrait shot. 
where the story kind of freezes for a moment as like the guy enters the room and we just like hold long enough that someone could do a quick portrait painting of him, <laughs> like the description system. <laughs> and I guess I had that in mind as I was reading. And, and, and like I said, this is, this is not a critique. I enjoyed it. But adjectives were fewer and far between, I felt. And when they did show up, I paid them that much more attention as a result. So just, yeah, I guess I, what I'm asking here is, um, what is your approach to making lean, quick writing? And does it include something along the lines of pruning back description? Yes, the description has to be clean and sharp. One of the things I learned studying Robert E. Howard was to let active verbs do a lot of the heavy lifting. And I don't claim to sound as beautiful as Robert E. Howard's prose, which can be quite stunning. He just, he's a natural poet. I can't, I, I do not sound like him, but I do try to emulate letting the action verbs do some of the descriptive work. And I try to make things short and sharp, but not not to Hemingway or Hemet levels, right? Uh, just as direct as possible mm -hmm. to keep things moving. Yeah, I mean, it never it never got so choppy like it was staccato. Don't get you wrong, but yeah, it definitely. Uh, <laughs> you, you obviously paid attention to rhythm, but yeah, things did lean towards uh, shorter sentences, and I think yeah, the stronger verb thing is. Well, yeah, and of course, it's all it's all about flow, and and sometimes you need to pull back and relax. You can't constantly have the same pace. You know, if we're describing a beautiful city or a sunset or or something, then you can wax poetic a little bit because we can't always be going at the same rate. Yeah, because I, then I think uh, to, to something else you've uh, you've described or used in your course there, it's like it would be like having a movie that's entirely close-ups. You know, sometimes <laughs> you got to have an establishing shot. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But yeah, that's something that I definitely sort of internalized for my own work. I would, I've actually thought of like, oh, what would you know, what would Howard do uh, when I <laughs> would have a character coming in? I'm like, I could stop and describe everything about them, or I could like just have a, a line about you know their their blue cape swept the sand as they entered, and then we'll get the rest of how they look as we you know they do things. Definitely uh, for character description anyway. I find more compelling, and I'm very glad to have uh, taken that from you. And the verb thing is is interesting because I think that's very timeless advice you know absolutely that's something howard did and uh i i tend to think of it in the context of ursula k Le Guin, just because i really enjoyed her writing books during the craft hmm. where she it's the exact same thing she calls it chastening but it's the same thing where she's like you know if you have uh ran quickly why don't you change that to jogged or charged or something like just get a stronger verb in there yeah and it'll almost always pay off no i, I completely agree is there anything else that you find when you're editing your prose that you tend to not so much like errors you encounter but just techniques you like to apply so there's the chastening thing maybe uh is there anything else that you find helps? yeah well dialogue super important for conveying character as you're working through the dialogue you have to keep each character's voice in mind and Hanavar is very well spoken and he's direct. He can be diplomatic, but most of the time he's very direct. He's more direct than I am. He's smarter than I am. He gets to the point faster. And so one of the things I always find myself doing is I always prune back his dialogue. If he has more than a few sentences at a time, then I generally know I've done something wrong unless he's uh, giving a speech, which occasionally happens really trying to get a point across because most of the rest of the time, he's not going to dilly dally. He's not going to wander around the point. He's not going to, he's always going to hit the point rather than trying to wander and find it. Mm -hmm. So I find that's something that I constantly work on. And it's not just him. I don't like fiction where every character sounds fairly similar. So I try to make the characters have different approaches to language. So yes, I hear dialogue fairly easily and use that for my scaffold, but by the final draft, I've gone over that as well. At least, so the flow of the dialogue and the subject of the dialogue remains the same by the end. And even some of the phrases will be the same, but I've punched it up. Okay. And I mean, you know, uh, is, is there any, um, <laughs> just to give people, you know, who are, are starting out maybe a little bit of hope that, you know, you never perfect your writing, you're always working on it. Is there anything that still you're kind of like, ah, oh, God damn it, you kind of catch yourself on? <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, it seems like every book, you develop, uh, every story sometimes, you develop a phrase or a word that you've used too much. And God, I hate that. And the only way to find that is, well, there's two ways. First, have some good beta readers. Mm -hmm. Second, read it out loud and not just once. I mean, unfortunately, you got to read it multiple times. Writing is hard work. It's not, you're not going to work up a sweat, but you've got to put in the time if you really want your uh, prose to sing. And I, I always want my prose to sing more. <laughs> uh, maybe one day I'll finally be happy with it. I could be content with it. 
someday I'd like to be really thrilled with it, but maybe I'm too critical. I think that's a neat distinction. Yeah. yeah. Being content and satisfied, like, okay, I got that one done, <laughs> but, but yeah. yeah. And oh, I hear you on the word echo thing too. It's always kind of a bummer when, you know, you work really hard on, let's say a short story and you're really happy with it and you get someone to read it. And they're like, why is everybody in this story furrowing their brows? Yeah. Like, oh shit. Everybody's, you know, like, <laughs> or just like, everybody's just constantly like shoving their, you know? Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I used to have people smiling, you know, the, the reaction shot, everyone's smiling. It's like, God damn it. Why are they all like, smiling <laughs> or furrowing their brows? There's one or they're looking over here. You know, so much of that can just be cut. Once it's underway, just an occasional reference as to what they're doing can bring the scene to life. Otherwise, if you've got interesting characters talking about interesting things, the reader's already somehow picturing it. I don't know how that magic happens, but I guess because we're social creatures and we've seen people in dialogue before, so we need less of the uh, minute details described. Oh, for sure. And I mean, actually, you mentioned that looking as one of two things I feel are real signifiers of someone who's kind of early on their journey with writing and doesn't feel perhaps as confident in themselves or in the reader's ability to take, you know, pick up what they're putting down is to be constantly describing where everyone's looking. And also what I, I it always makes me think of role-playing games from the computer where you'd like put items in the guy's hands. It's like, you're always doing descriptions of like, this was in his left hand, this was in his right hand. He put his right foot over here. You know, you always know what they're holding. And I, and I say this with love because I was definitely guilty of this, of course, <laughs> early on. That's oh, yeah. that's, you know, when I when I edit someone's work and they're like, oh, geez, you know, thanks for finding these, these issues or whatever. I'm like, you know how I saw them. You know how I recognize them. Oh, <laughs> you have I was to make there, a man. lot of mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you make a lot of mistakes and uh, I'm still making them. And y you got to be humble. You're always trying to perfect your craft. You're trying to get better at it. Mm, yeah, no, mistakes are just learning, you know, as long as you're, as long as you're learning, hopefully. <laughs> if you're still making the same mistake 20 years after 20 years, maybe think about it. But right. Yeah. <laughs> I gotta say, as, as with the writing in the promotion of this book, it's been very clear you're putting your back into it. We're still pretty close to its initial release, and I've genuinely lost track of how many reviews, interviews, and so forth that I've seen, which is great. People are talking about it. I love it. And uh, as I mentioned to you off mic before, uh, I've had a lot more hits on my earlier interview with you. Uh, people are clearly Googling me when they want to know this Howard guy. Is there anything about the book, and this can be in spoiler territory, I can give a warning and tell people to skip ahead kind of thing, that you would like to discuss that hasn't come up yet or has perhaps not been dug into as deeply as you'd like? You know, If you were interviewing you, you know, what would you... What would you ask? What would you say? Can you go deeper on that? I would like to hear what people think of the villains and the allies that Hanover finds. Mm -hmm. And it's hard to discuss that without going into um, going in detail. So I, I'm always curious to hear what other people think of the villains and the allies that Hanover finds. Is that maybe partly because of how the book is structured so that we're seeing we're seeing Hanover largely through other people's eyes? I mean, there's that whole framing device we discussed earlier, but also because he is very reserved. You know, he's working on that, by the way, over the course of the book. Uh, listener, don't worry. He's not like he's an enigma forever. But, you know, part of the fun of, of getting to know Hanover is the fact that, you know, he's been traumatized. This is the premise. I'm not spoiling anything here. You know, he's just arrived home in time to witness the genocide of his people. <laughs> that might make a guy close up a little bit. And be reluctant to form new connections. Yeah, exactly. So I find that a side effect of that is that, yeah, you tend to uh, have this gap into which to imagine him, which is compelling. And also you tend to see him through as the allies, villains, everybody's perceptions of him. You know, this idea of this characterized legend, it's really, really cool. And so, yeah, it does also give the supporting cast more room to shine. It's like he's kind of just getting out of the way a little bit of everyone else at times, like a gracious uh, lead in a movie. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 I found I really enjoyed the supporting cast. I was, and I got invested in them pretty quickly. That was something else I was impressed by. You know, some of the short stories. Sorry, listener, I'm, I'm grabbing my physical copy here to make sure I don't bone the name of a chapter. Pardon me. Do, do, do. Right, right, right. Shroud of Feathers, Chapter 5, which was originally published in uh, Tales from the Magician's Skull. I forget the issue. I want to say six, but I'm probably yeah, wrong. Yeah, no, six is correct. Oh, was it? Okay. Hey, all right. One, one point for my brain. But yeah, Shroud of Feathers. I really dug that story. And Without giving too much away, uh, reader, it features uh, a local authority figure that Hanover has to, you know, he's undercover. So he's like, yeah, I, I love the German Empire. They're great. Huh? Uh, so he's, and, but as a side effect of his cover, he ends up getting drawn in to work with this authority figure to solve a mystery of, you know, involving a bird and a missing girl. And you get to know him and, and, and somebody he's in love with. I was impressed that because in part of Hanover being kind of more reserved, it gave that room for me to become so invested and this love story that's just kind of inferred at and it's kind of threaded in with a whole bunch of other stuff happening. It's not, you know, the main central focus. 
But there was, by the time it was over, I felt like I knew these characters, and I felt like if for some reason the book was like, ah, Hanovar, whatever, and just, like, veered right to, like, follow them, <laughs> I, you know, I would have read another story to see how their village progresses and what goes on uh, with what happens as a result of that tale. So, yeah, I mean, without getting too lost in a lot of specific names, that would be my sort of general reaction, I suppose, to allies and villains of this. I, I, I dug them. And, you know, and the villains were compelling because I think, in part, you were very good at avoiding... Um, pure evil why does he do these things he's evil and I'm like okay <laughs> you know i felt like there was a lot of attention to everyone having their motivations and sure some guys were closer to just being big jerks than others but always you could see well yeah okay this guy's a big jerk but also he like he's concerned about his sister in this context or he's trying to you know he's got this uh, motivation that comes from his relation you know actually there's a lot of good family relations now i think about it he introduced us to quite a few uh, families and couples over the course of it. And very quickly, you could kind of, I guess because families are relatable, right? I mean, you know, ideally, most of us get to have that experience of being in a family, being in a, a level relationship. A lot of very interesting wives, actually, I noticed a lot of the patricians uh, and, and other, you know, nobles and, and royalty and so on that you encounter have these very compelling, interesting wives that always seemed a bit more on the ball and more interesting than the, their husbands. Uh, I don't know if that, how much of that is real life coming into the book. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, yeah. So I guess, uh, sorry, this may be maybe just me fanboying. Uh, I, I finished the novel last night, reader, so I'm still very high on it. But yeah, I, I would say the allies and villains were pretty cool. Was there any particular one? I mean, Cyprian uh, was compelling for sure. The uh, the sort of equal of Hanavar that he had a very friendly relationship with. Cyprian, I think the segment with Cyprian <clears throat> may be my favorite in the entire book. I was really pleased with how that one turned out. Yeah, yeah. And, and listen, in case, uh, this is sort of not being too spoiler here, because you, again, Howard does a great job of establishing quickly, like, kind of what we're dealing with here, and then you get to know it better. Cyprian is essentially Hanovar's equal on the other side. He was the only guy to ever actually fight Hanovar to a standstill. And it's just a very fun exploration of that character type where you have your very competent protagonist, but there's that guy who can match him, and they respect each other for that. You know, it creates a more interesting relationship than if, you know, Cyprian was motivated by evil. <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah. No, Cyprian is probably my favorite uh, antagonist, question mark, uh, that uh, that we encountered throughout the whole book. But uh, there was a you know, raft of other compelling people. Well, listen, I, I will happily talk about writing craft all day with you, as you know, and I will talk about it now, finally, uh, instead of just publishing stuff. And I love this book. And the second book is coming out real soon. Actually, that was a funny side effect of reading a physical copy. The ending felt sudden to me, and it was nothing to do with your writing. It was the fact that I saw the page count. I was like, okay, we got like 30 more pages. Oh, <laughs> because there is a preview of book two. <laughs> so it's funny how that goes. But yeah, I say preview of book two, which is out, I think, even before the year is over. Right? Yeah, it comes out in October, believe it or not. You have to wait almost 60 days. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Good grief. <laughs> this is terrible. I'm going to write a letter of complaint to Bain. No, I, actually, that brings me back to another question. And I don't ask this, like, why did you do that? But I'm, I'm just curious, what was the reasoning behind, um, you know, like you said, you're revising book three, my God, uh, the pace. What, what, what was the, the decision making behind this pace of writing and release? So I went shopping. My agent and I went shopping for a new publisher for this series. And so while it was being shopped around, it took six or seven months. And I just went ahead and wrote the second book while I was waiting. And so when, when they signed me on for the next one, I was almost ready to turn over the second one. It still needed some revision time. Mm -hmm. So pretty soon they had both. And I think they just decided like, look, this is a series, but we want people to know that we're serious about it. We want to launch it with the bang. We want people to know, oh, they're not going to have to wait multiple years between books. We see that Howard can write quickly and well. Hopefully they can see I can write well. They can certainly see I can write quickly. So let's show them what he can do. If they like this, they're going to like the second one just as much, maybe even better. Then they'll see how serious we are. And book two has a sneak preview of book three. The idea is there's so many people out there who seem to be reluctant to try fantasy series until they're over because there's some frustrating people who haven't finished series. And, you know, the vast majority of writers who are fortunate enough not to die while they're in the middle of their series, I feel sorry for, for their families. Robert Jordan. Um, but but yeah, yeah. the rest of us are trying to make a living and we can't, um, the, the series will not continue if you don't buy the first book because you're waiting until it's all done, you know. Yeah, you, I remember running into this all the time uh, years ago. I worked at a comic shop and people would be like, ah, I could buy the first issue, but I'll wait until the trade paperback collection. And I'd be like, ah, I mean, there's nothing inherently wrong with that. But if too many people do that. You're, you're going to kill the series. Yeah. Exactly. You won't, you won't get the collection. You won't get more in the series. Yeah, exactly. So I think they wanted to show that they were serious and I was serious. And 
hopefully any listeners could tell just how serious I am and also how much fun I'm having with this. Mm-hmm. I fully intend for it to be at least five and preferably seven. There's going to be a turning point at the end of book four where I will know what I can do and how much leeway I've got in the future to do a little bit more. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah, and again, it makes me think of television, you know, and like, you, how many more seasons are you going to get? Okay, well, we got to write so we can go either way. Like, how can we... <laughs> right, right. Well, I would like a full seven seasons. So, reader... Uh... <laughs> Please give this book a chance. I think it's absolutely worth your time. Hanavar is, in fact, actually how I first discovered Howard. I mentioned this before the podcast, but it was The Second Death of Hanavar, which is in issue three of Tales from the Magician's Skull, but also one of the early chapters in this book. And it actually plays a... Well, let's be mindful of spoilers. Uh, it's an important story in, in, in this book as well. I'll just say that. Yeah, and so I would love to get four, five, six, seven, twenty more books of Hanavar. Man, just give me all the Hanavar you got. Oh, I, I think I think twenty would be too many. How many adventures can one guy have? But uh... <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I mean, I'm being a bit hyperbolic, I guess. But I definitely would rather read seven than a five book series because, uh, yeah, I just I really dig him. And like I said, he makes me think of just some of the most flexible, iconic pulp characters I've ever read. Uh, who just you can see them in uh, a huge variety of situations, and you're always going to be curious, like well, what's he going to do? So yeah, uh, to the end, classic podcast wrap up. Where can people find you and where people find the book i suppose the public media place i am the most often i check it every other day or so is howardandrewjones.one over on facebook i'm back on the thing known as formerly known as twitter oliver's recently turned me on to blue sky but i haven't really explored much i think i've probably tagged two or three people as friends but i haven't been back on to find my way around honestly i'd rather be writing hanavar than being on media anyway and of course i try to remember to update my website every now and then howardandrewjones.com but really if you want to get me relatively quickly (laughs) the facebook page i do check that more often Okay, yeah, and also your website is a great wealth of articles about writing and you know the history of literature and stuff. Like, there's also it's great stuff for people to read there. Oh yeah, I mean, there's. Uh, I was thinking while we were talking about Stark earlier. I also learned how to write uh, briefing room scenes based on Richard Stark's stuff, the Parker novels, and I've got uh, I've got an article on that where I dissect briefing room scenes and you know any kind of heist planning the heist scenes i guess would be yeah yeah i read that one yeah it's all it is almost comedic how how quickly he gets into scenes but i mean well as with that intro i read earlier (laughs) and uh the book uh where would where where can people find it oh they can find lord of the shattered land hopefully about anywhere they can order it through uh, barnes and noble or chapters or amazon or indigo books yeah pretty much all the places Audio has not been released yet, but is supposedly mm. coming down the pike soon. Oh, that's cool. Do you uh, know anything yet about like who might be reading it? Or alas, no. Oh, okay. I do. I, I know nothing. I know nothing. I just sent in a pretty please. Whoever records it, don't let them say Volanus. It's Volanus. <laughs> Hanavar is pronounced Hanavar, and Volanus is pronounced Volanus, not Volanus. And I've heard a couple <laughs> of booktubers reviewing the books calling it that, and I just cringe. Oh my god. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that, that had not occurred to me uh, before. <laughs> Jesus Christ! Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Volanus, for the record, Cimmeria or Chimeria? Well, yeah, there's, there's these debates and all kinds of fantasy stuff. <laughs> well, yeah, some of them don't matter because they don't sound stupid. But if a name sounds stupid, we'll pronounce it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Go with the non-stupid pronunciation, please. Oh, hey, you know what? Little mini bonus question. Maybe I'll edit this in earlier or just leave it here. You know. The magazine, the books, the pace of the books I've mentioned before, and just, you know, life in general, like you are a very hardworking guy. Um, how have you avoided or largely avoided, hopefully, burnout? You know, it can be hard to write when you're being burnt out, but if you're trying to write a whole bunch, then it's kind of at odds, right? So how, uh, how have you met and negotiated that? Well, I'll be honest, with some of my previous work, that's been tricky. I am in love with what I am doing with this character. There was a point in my career where I continued to be stuck in the lower mid list and I was having trouble finding joy in what I was doing. And this will sound strange perhaps, but I saw this documentary called Jiro Dreams of Sushi. It's about a craftsman, a great artist of making sushi. And it has nothing to do with writing, but it has to do with the act of being involved in the craft. And it got me thinking about my craft and how I approached it. I used to prefer some phases of the creative process more than others. I used to hate the drafting. I used to hate the revision. Uh, 
you know, I, I love the initial outburst of creativity and the rest was a struggle. And over the course of the years, I've, I've found that revision is, is one of my favorite parts, but I still hated uh, the initial outlining and all that. And seeing how he was constantly thinking about his craft made me realize, well, you know, everything I'm doing pretty much is about story creation. If I'm playing a game, it's usually a kind of a game that generates a story. Even if it's a war game, I'm watching the story unfold of the battle that I'm fighting. And I got to thinking, fortunately, this happened right as I was beginning to uh, structure the Hanavar stuff. And I suddenly just realized ways to fall in love with the entire craft. Now there's no phase of the craft that I dislike. I love every aspect of it I'm doing, except possibly for promotions, because I'd rather be writing. I've also tried to share that movie with other writers, but I don't think it's as useful a tool to have more journeyman writers take it in. I think you have to have been practicing the craft for a while and be familiar with the tools to really groove on that. You have to have experience with all the stages of the creative process, I think, for it to really impact you in the same way. And maybe it won't. Maybe I'm just a weirdo. God knows I'm probably a little bit weird or I wouldn't be a writer. But yeah, now I love all the processes and I haven't had a problem with burnout since. I might have been very disappointed if I hadn't landed a publisher, but I love the character and have such faith in these stories so much that even if I hadn't found a publisher, I probably would have kept writing them and tried to publish it myself. That's absolute wisdom, man. Like, yeah, learning to love every aspect of it, maybe even promotional one day. Is that <laughs> well, I love I loved talking with people. No, it's okay. Don't worry. I'm, not, I'm like, I'm taking this personally. No, I just mean that like, it's, it's interesting what you say about it taking time, I think is very true. I think when, when people begin writing, by and large, it's the ideas that are really exciting and the thrill of just starting the first few pages, but then, oh, geez, this is taking a while, you know? So you have to learn to like, even just learn to love finishing, right? And then, yeah, everything else. Revision, I find, is something that tends to take people a while to come around to. It's not often, I don't even know why I'm saying it's not often. I'm not sure I've ever heard a new writer say they like revising. It really seems to take time for people to reframe revising as not being a kind of homework, but instead writing unto itself. And a writing where you don't have a blank page. Isn't that nice? You know, you've got something to edit. <laughs> So yeah, I think there's wisdom to all of that. And yeah, and even the promo thing, I, I always kind of harp on that a little bit just because I was lucky I, in one sense that I was raised by two self-employed artists. And so from a very young age, they would sort of push me like a lot of valuable lessons, you know, like not underselling yourself, which is a common problem with creatives, but also be comfortable with promoting yourself because no matter how wonderful the thing you make, if nobody knows it's around, <laughs> you know? Absolutely. Absolutely. Unfortunately, you know, I used to say I'm a, I'm on the extroverted end of an introvert, but I don't really know that I, I don't really know that I am an introvert in some ways because I really do enjoy the company of other people. So I'm perfectly happy uh, with promo work. I would just rather be writing. I hear you. I hear you. It's all good. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we still have our preferences, even once we make our peace with all these different aspects. Oh, yeah. Right? yeah. I mean, there's some stages I do like more than others, but at this point, I, I enjoy them all. So. I, I, I was going to say right now, I almost enjoy revision more than the initial writing, which seems absolute cart before horse. <laughs> I'm, I'm currently working on something like I just no, can't I, wait I to get. I completely agree. There's, there's two phases I like better than any of the others. And one of them is the revising phase where you can see this stuff uh, coalesce and you can feel happier and happier with what it's going to end up being. And, and the other one is not the initial burst when you got the idea, but as you're turning it more from a thumbnail into an outline before I begin my scaffold, I was like, oh, I see how this is going to work now. That's a favorite. That It's so joyous to see to see how it's going to begin to click together. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, I've got it now. I can see that. I love it. All right. All right, folks. So, yeah, again, howardjones.com and uh, Lord of a Shattered Land. I will put links to all this stuff in the show notes so you can find it nice and easy to take you there. Thank you so much for spending this time with me, Howard. I'm really happy we finally got to have our, our craft-centric conversation uh, that I, I've made you wait almost a year for. Sorry. <laughs> well, it was, a, it was a pleasure. It was a pleasure. I hope we can uh, meet in person again sometime. I would love that. And in, in the meanwhile, I will enjoy the pleasure of reading more Hanover stories and oh. uh, I can see you around Discord. <laughs> All right, listener, you go That's check out those good. links. Talk to you later, Howard. So I'm Writing a Novel features original intro and outro music by Gloria Guns, and it's hosted by yours truly, Oliver Brackenbury. If you'd like to get in touch, please email us at soimwritinganovel at gmail.com. Please consider sharing the show with anybody who might like it, or checking out any of the other ways you can support the show by heading to soimwritinganovel.com slash support the show, which has things like links to our Patreon, Coffee, and PayPal. 
Thanks for hanging out with me and Howard, and I'll see you soon.